Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dean and Sarah to the podcast. Dean serves as the founding and lead pastor of City Church in Tallahassee, Florida. He's also an accomplished author, having published multiple works, including his book, Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. Dean, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. Thank you, Dr. Allen, a proud Midwestern alum here, and I'm glad to be with you. Hey, you're not just an alum. You are in a in a very special class of, of alums, and what would that be? I was uh, named Alumnus of the Year. That's right. Years ago, That's right. That's right. Which I was very grateful for. That was a big, huge surprise. I had no idea that was happening at our uh, at our lunch at the annual meeting, and I was, I'm really grateful and really proud of that. Yeah, well, we're grateful and proud of you and appreciate your work there in Tallahassee, a work I've seen up close before, preached for you a few years ago, and got to see the Lord's hand of favor on, on your ministry there, and have appreciated your friendship and just our broader ministry partnership, uh, points of partnership over the years. So, And good to be on the podcast with you today. So we're talking today about your new book, uh, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. And that's the, uh, the, the cut line. Uh, the name of the book itself is Pure. And Dean, I am eager to get into this book with you and uh, so many different angles I want to take, especially given your ministry there in Tallahassee and, of course, substantially involved there at Florida State. And yeah, so I, I just think it's the right man, the right message, the right time. But before we get to that, give us a few words of update uh, on the church and uh, your family and what's, uh, what's new with you guys. Yeah, well, we're going into you know summer season, which uh, is a little different for us because of uh, you know the legislators not in session, being the capital city, college students are gone. Uh, but we still really do uh, go full speed ahead. One of the big things we do as a goal is to connect new freshmen coming in. We run about twenty percent college students here at the church. Uh, and the church right now is in a really healthy place. So a lot of neat things happening. We just had our baptism Sunday a few weeks ago. So all dozens of people baptized. Uh, so the church is really really exciting right now. Um, the family, uh, you know, I was about to be a 16 year old, so we're learning how to drive and, and, uh, both my boys are in spring football practice and my wife's doing well and the family's in a, in a really good place. So we're, uh, we're thankful. All is well in Tallahassee. Yeah. And look, I appreciate uh, the joy that not just you, but your entire family, uh, you guys radiate. And so that's always sweet to see and to perceive. We're talking about your book, Pure, but I don't want to just rush by previous publications. Give us a word or two about, about your previous works. My first book was called The Unsaved Christian, and it was a book about what I think is the most underrated mission field in America. And I know that title sounds strange, Unsaved Christian. And it's about people who, if you ask them if they're a Christian, they would say yes, but their reason for believing so has nothing to do with saving faith. Uh, So oftentimes we've seen cultural Christianity, what this really is, as a discipleship issue. And I make the case in the book that it's actually an evangelism issue. These aren't folks that just need to get it together and get more serious about their faith. These people who actually need to come to know the Lord altogether. Uh, so I wrote it as kind of a mission guide of how to reach cultural Christians in your community. And then I wrote a book called uh, Getting Over Yourself. Uh, that is a look at what I call the new prosperity gospel, which is uh, not the old prosperity gospel. Of course, it still exists. But that's the whole, you know, God wants to make you healthy and wealthy. This is more subtle than that. Well, this is more uh, that God kind of exists as a uh, self-help coach, uh, someone to make your wildest dreams come true. He doesn't want you to live that mundane life. He wants you to you know, do more, be more, but it's all in the context of worldly things and worldly success that only really makes sense in an affluent Western context. So I want folks to understand that messaging that's everywhere. It's really pervading Instagram, a lot of younger people, and also like how Jesus offers us something so much more better than any of that, and that's himself. But it's not a negative or critical book. It's more of a, hey, 
here's what's going on. Here's what's prevalent in a lot of pop church culture right now. And here's actually what the scriptures have to say about it. So I hope, hope they were helpful. They were very much so. And of course, you published with Moody and I published uh, with Moody several books as well. And so we have that that common factor. And I, look, I know your book just came out, but I have to ask this. Do you have another book in the pipeline or, or, or a message that's firing your bones that you're, you're eager to get out? Yes, I, I'm going to start working on uh, the whole idea of holding the center. And by that, I don't mean being politically moderate. There's nothing moderate about Jesus Christ, uh, but holding the evangelical center, that I really believe the future of effective ministry in our country is going to belong to those who figure out in this world of ministry fringes in evangelical culture of what it actually looks like to hold that center position. But that is going to move and evolve, of course, uh, because the fringes change, right? But to uh, figure out how to how to really understand, make sense of that, and actually define it and what it looks like. So that's in its early kind of stages of developing. Good deal. Well, hey, let's get into our topic today, talking about uh, pastoring in a sexualized culture. And uh, boy, that's a topic every pastor um, should be aware of and a topic that every pastor needs to hear us talk about because uh, if ever a generation in recent Western history pastored in a, uh, a time of sexual confusion and, uh, and, just, and just absolute sexual self-gratification, uh, it is now. So give us a sense, what, what prompted the book? What, what need did you see? What opportunity did you perceive that uh, moved you to get this message out? I grew up in the 90s. That's when I was in high school and kind of in the peak youth days and campus ministry on high school days like FCA and things like that. And what was a big part of that scene was the True Love Waits movement, uh, where we were really pushed to uh, towards sexual purity. And the context of it all was to save yourself for your future spouse. That was the messaging over and over and over again. And there's been a lot of uh, just reflection on that era and a lot of the missteps and errors of the era by my generation that now we're in our early 40s. And what I'm afraid has happened, I'm seeing in some of uh, evangelical culture, kind of to the, the left of the center of evangelical culture, is because the true love weights issue maybe had some flaws. I, I, I know it's an overused phrase to say, throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm afraid that's what's happening now. There's so much angst towards what they call purity culture that we're often either being silent or being accommodating when it comes to the world, sexual ethics altogether. And oftentimes it seems like it's been spurred from that era, like a beyond overcorrection. And I think one of two things are happening, we're seeing a generation of Christians either have to fully get in line with the world's sexual ethics or be silent about them altogether. Uh, so I wanted to write a book that said, hey, look, even if everything we say about the true of movement that was wrong, even if you're correct about all of those things, it doesn't change the fact that God still has a very clear design for sexuality, and it's not oppressive, outdated, or irrelevant. And I want folks to see it and understand it and the everyday implications of life. Yeah, so I graduated high school in 1995, and uh, so I'm about your age, I think a couple of years older. But, but I certainly identify with, with your kind of youth group experience. Summer camp was driven towards sexual purity, not exclusively, but, but largely— uh, youth group sermons were driven towards purity, you know, save yourself for marriage, you know, purity rings, promise rings, that sort of thing. And look, it was a central part of my life. And looking back, I'm glad. I mean, you know, I wasn't following Christ as a 17-year-old, but my goodness, looking at uh, all sorts of things one could have fallen into, but some of those basic moral parameters and expectations 
uh, did provide you know, a certain degree of insulation, uh, certain guardrails in my life, and I appreciate that. But I think you're right. I think we've kind of come through that. And of course, some of those who are champions of the purity culture have come out very critically of the purity culture. And then perhaps there is an overcorrection underway. And so I, I like how you you frame the book, you frame the topic, and even your basic assessments of your own personal coming-of-age experience, I really think is spot on. So, so what are you hoping to accomplish in the book? What would you like to see happen in churches and in lives of ministers and believers who would read this book and seek to follow it? One, I want Christians to be unashamed of God's design for human sexuality. I, I think there's people that are timid concerning it. Uh, they are afraid to talk about it. You see a lot of churches that would line up, you know, with us and what we value, you know, Dr. Allen in terms of theology and doctrine, but they are silent on these matters, even though they would line up with the scriptures say about marriage being between a man and a woman, about sex being reserved for that union that God created for marriage. And and so uh, they believe those things. They don't talk about it because maybe in the name of pragmatism or in the name of not wanting to be called a bigot or whatever it might be, they're they're just really quiet about it. And and, and I think. That's the first big step. I want folks to be unashamed of it, and I think we're only going to be unashamed of it if we are more clear than ever on exactly what the Scriptures say concerning this. And I want to give folks confidence so to understand. I'm just a regular guy, and, and I write books to regular folks, and I want them to see how God's design how it permeates into every area of our life. So I have a chapter on all the things we see right now, on cohabitation, on pornography, on adultery, on sex in marriage, on homosexuality. Uh, I talk about what I wish the True of Weights movement would have done. Uh, differently that I think would have been more effective looking back. And I'm like, you know, I'm thankful for that era. I have more positive things to say than negative things to say about it. But there are definitely some approaches and angles uh, that were taken that I think uh, actually uh, set us up for either legalism or disappointment. And I want to make sure that we flush that stuff out. Well, and I think, too, the uh, at times myopic emphases on sexual purity. I know for me as a teenager looking back, it, it was like, man, it seems like I was— being, it, I was being spoken to about it so frequently that it made me think, like, all of life must go back to this. <laughs> and maybe a, l- a little less yeah. conversations and a few less sermons on it may have just kind of normalized even for me as to just the broader experience that an adult has or doesn't have along these lines. But, uh, but, but anyway, as it relates to your book and uh, the current ministry moment, um, again, churches are grappling with this, believers are grappling with this, pastors are grappling with this, parents are grappling with this. And so I guess, what's your view of the lay of the land as far as the average evangelical church and the average evangelical church member as to how they're processing uh, the current sexual issues in our culture? Yeah, I'm afraid I think the, the regular church member oftentimes just doesn't think it's that, that big of a deal. You know, it, it's sort of the, hey, if it's not hurting anybody, if, there, if there's consent, uh, you know, it's almost like a kids will be kids or it's, you know, or oh, they're adults and I, I'm seeing that happen a lot, and that they are almost so gun shy if they are going to talk about it that when their pastor brings it up, they get nervous in the service or they uh, just feel really uncomfortable. Uh, and, and I think that that's part of the reason I wrote the book too is it's God's story in the Scripture that God's standard for sexuality, what He's designed, is as clear as anything else in all the Bible. Uh, so why would we trust? the scriptures that tell us that Jesus rose from the grave, but not trust the scriptures that tell us what God has prescribed for his people, that he has made good. And I think what happened in the True Love Waste movement, as I look back to my high school years, it seemed like the entire goal was simply saving yourself for your future spouse. You're 16 years old and being talked about your 
your spouse. Like, well, who? <laughs> like, right, you know, right. Who I haven't met this person yet. Rather than the motivation being God's glory, worship of God, loving God, the one who loved us first, and God's design. So what happened was you would see people maybe that failed as a 17-year-old uh, in terms of um, maybe you know, going too far with their girlfriend or boyfriend, getting involved in sexual sin. So based on the whole teaching that, hey, you got to save yourself, save yourself, the honeymoon, you don't, you don't want to be the one on your honeymoon who didn't save yourself. That was like the rhetoric. Then it became like, a, well, I guess I already messed up, so it doesn't matter now. Rather than calling people to repentance and to Jesus and to the good news of the gospel, and it really created a either shame and guilt culture or a legalistic, pharisaical culture on the other end uh, about these kind of things. And I want to just take those things away and help people uh, just kind of work through those things and instead say, no, we just want to be biblical Christians who want to participate in this. But what I think I see coming to really answer your question is I think eventually the church has to look and go, wait, how is this working for everybody? Like, look at the, the world's sexual ethic, how much brokenness is in our culture right now because of people departing from God's design. And I think the more radical people get about this in our culture, I think the more the church is going to button up and, and be more serious about being clear about these things. And rather than see it as simply as a culture war, see it as a theological teaching for God's glory and for our actual good. Yeah, that's very well stated. And I appreciate that, that Dean. You know, as I think about our current ministry moment, and again, we all know the culture's lost its mind and uh, issues not just of sexual expression, but sexual identity, gender reinvention, all of that going on. I guess you have, you have different types of people that, that show up in a church on any given Sunday, especially those who aren't formally a part of the congregation, but, but may walk in the door. And some of those have just fully bought into the mindset of, of, of contemporary American society. Marriage is marriage, whether you're, you're man, woman, man, man, woman, woman. Sexual expression is fine, and, and they've just really bought into to the sexual revolution wholeheartedly. And that obviously is one category of tremendous concern. But there are others who still speak of holding to biblical sexual morality, but they really want to draw a box around old-fashioned fornication. And if it's within that box of old-fashioned fornication, then it's not right, but it's not wrong. But if you're outside that line or outside that box and you're into homosexuality and these other more kind of shocking scenes of sexual sin, well, then that's what we're against. And this came clear to me a while back. I bumped into a person in local church. I was preaching and talking, and it became pretty clear to me in conversation that um, their adult child, and again, they're adults, so, you know, the parents are going to do so much right if, you're, if your son or daughter's 24 or 28, but was in a, in a cohabitation you know, relationship. And, uh, and, and it just really registered with me in a, in a very, um, just a very heartbreaking way that it kind of been normalized in their family. And then, you know, you see it oftentimes where parents, evangelical parents, are discouraging their young son or young daughter from getting married until every duck in life seems to be in a row, till you know, you're, you're done with grad school, till your student loans are paid off, till whatever other life threshold you want to cross has been crossed. Meanwhile, though not perhaps not stated, everyone knows that you're living in a, in a relationship of, of fornication with this you know, young lady or young man you've been dating for six years and don't intend to marry for another three or four do you see much of that, Dean? Is it my making sense here? What what, I, what I'm suggesting? Oh yeah, I, I see lots of that, and that comes from the cultural idea, the lie that now the church is buying into that marriage is a capstone rather than a cornerstone. So after I go and accomplish these things, you know, get your master's degree, and you know, have a hundred thousand dollars in the bank, and and uh, off your student loans and things such as that, uh, then. Get married. You know, you're, you're back, back Europe, 
you know, fulfill your bucket list, sow your wild oats, then get married, rather than marriage being a cornerstone we build our life from. I, I just turned 23 a month before. My wife had just turned 22 a month before. We had no money. Uh, we moved to seminary where we had no jobs or anything. And again, it's just, so we had to be really careful. We got jobs quickly, but we built our life from marriage uh, rather than build our life you know, to marriage. And I think we have to rediscover that. But not that you should, you should have to get married young. I don't think you should force it or be flipping about it. But we should celebrate. If, as long as they understand the decision they're making and have strong premarital counseling ministries in our local churches, we should celebrate people's decision to get married young. I don't mean you're 16 years old, obviously, but you know, once you're an adult, you're, you're, you know, I, I think, as, and I think Christian parents do have to ask that question: What's more important to us? Uh, our, you know, if it's a, you know, financial stability or social standing with our friends who think we're crazy if our kids get married when they're 20, or to actually do things God's way, which is to see marriage as a cornerstone from not just sexuality, but the institution itself. No, that, I think you're exactly right. You know, my wife and I, uh, we will celebrate 23 years of marriage in June next month. But when we got married, I had been out of college a month. My wife still had another year to go in college. And we literally strategized, like, when is the earliest possible date we can get married? Like, I can afford to... Uh, you know, to support you, and uh, and we can we can kind of grow up together. And looking back, I mean, we did just that. We grew up together, and it was just such a glorious journey, and is a glorious journey God has given us. So, so I guess you know, back to uh, the the main kind of theme of your book, you talk about some lies that the culture tells Christians about sexuality. What would some of those lies be? Yeah, well, the first one is that idea of that marriage is a capstone rather than a cornerstone. That's a huge one. Uh, I, I think that porn is the norm, that it's just kind of normal to look at pornography. It's, uh, you know, it's just kind of part of a coming-of-age idea. It's not going to hurt anybody, uh, that that type of approach. Um, we uh, see one that, you know, that gay is okay. Uh, that idea that if you don't just live, you know, whole, almost the default mode we think is just love. We don't define what love means, but just love, which means don't say anything about it, don't talk about it, just be, you know, a loving person. I mean, th- those are kind of the main ones. Uh, that we're seeing right now. And the other one I think would be that sex is expected uh, now in dating relationships where, yeah, it used to be when you were a teenager, you kind of got, you know, when you went out with a girl or a guy for the first, you know, time, second time, third time, there was that like anxiety about like the first kiss used to kind of be a thing, you know? Right. And that's almost become now, that that's almost become now the equivalent of sleeping together. It's like to go out on a date is almost to agree to do that, which is really, a, especially in a college time, we see it all the time. I mean, it's just part of, uh, it used to be not that it made it okay, but it used to be more at least it was like your girlfriend, and that's how they kind of justify it. It's, just, it's a fake commitment. They're, not, they're only committed to one the other one decides they're not, and it's not marriage. But they almost feel better about themselves saying that, oh, we you know we're committed to a relationship. Now that doesn't matter either. Now it's just like as long as it's consensual, it doesn't matter. Like with, with, the, with whomever, whenever, you know, whatever kind of idea. And again, it's only leading to more and more brokenness. It's only leading, I believe, to more and more of a wide open window for Christians to share the share the good news of God's design for His people and why it matters. So I think really, as the world continues into more and more brokenness, it gives us even much more of an opportunity, like almost kind of be the last one standing, to go. Here's why, you know, we're going to. And so I think the church has to be ready to receive uh, people who have been lied to by the sexual revolution when they come in hurting and broken and, and looking for answers and for healing. You're in the trenches. You're pastoring a major church, major college town, state capital. So you're doing it pastorally. What would you say to pastors and seminary students listening to this podcast about how they can best equip themselves for ministering in the season? 
Yeah, the the John four story of Jesus and the woman at the well has always resonated with me, and because two things happen, there's a lot of things in that story. Obviously, you could preach three months on it, but see, uh, but Jesus one met this person in brokenness, like in their world, you know, like actually like received the person, offered the person grace, you know, offered the person living water, which is Christ Himself, right? Um, but at the same time, he also told her the truth about her life. You're right when you say you don't have a husband. In fact, you're no, you're, you have had five husbands. The one you're living with now is not your husband. So he wasn't afraid to compromise the truth. And at the same time, he cared about the individual. Uh, so I think we have to really put that into practice. Where we're, we, have to, we have to make sure that we're clear on these things. It is not, we cannot equate loving with being silent or loving with being affirming. We need to equate loving with loving people like Jesus would love them. And I think that means that we are in the business of offering forgiveness and healing and a connection to churches. And I think that pastors need to expect and assume, but assume in a good way. I know sometimes we talk about how assuming is not a good thing, but accept, expect or assume that a lot of people that you are ministering to on a Sunday, even those who are buttoned up, look like they have it all, have it all together, have experienced some kind of sexual sin. So, you know, abuse is a whole nother conversation. I'm not even referring to abuse. I mean, they actually just themselves have participated you know, in sexual relationships, in high school, college, maybe even right now in their adult life, uh, that are not between a man, someone who is their husband and their wife. And here's the message we need to proclaim, and that is consistency, that we believe that, uh, that sex is not for in-love people or ready people or mature people, uh, that sex is for married people. And we're going to make just a big a deal about adultery and sex outside of marriage, as we are about homosexuality and, and any sentence outside of God's design, because one, we're about God's glory, and two, we're about God's about the good of his people and wants us to flourish in relationship with him. And we got to preach those things and proclaim those things. We have to right now in this moment. When you think about where your people are, and by your people, I don't mean specifically your congregation. I mean congregations across America. And pastors are you know, dealing with real people and real challenges and real baggage and real temptations and uh, real presuppositions and all the rest. Um, what do you say to pastors about how they rightly prepare shepherd and guard their people on this front? One, I, I think that if you've never really talked about it before, just be prepared that it's going to be kind of shocking and, hey, we don't really go there, you know, kind of conversations. I think you do. I can't go up there on one Sunday and just drop a bomb. <laughs> you know, I think you have to kind of prepare people through it. Uh, but also I think that the reputation that people have towards evangelical leaders and pastors is that either we're prudes or we're just coming from a spirit of condemnation about this or we're obsessive over these things. And I think we just really have to frame it all. And again, this is, I think, where the True Awaits movement missed the mark, is we have to frame it all in the context of what God has made and that God can be trusted and that God is good. I know I said this earlier, but if we can believe what the Scriptures say about the resurrection, you know, we can actually believe what, what the Scriptures say about Jesus walking on water and Moses parting the Red Sea. If we can believe the Scriptures on those kind of things, why in the world can't we believe the Scriptures on what God said about sexuality? And the answer is, we let culture influence us so much that we can't, we don't even realize it. Uh, so I think if we just really keep it to the scriptures and, and actually really offer the resolve to be in Christ and Him being with His people and, and what that looks like for us, and that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, just know the spirit of condemnation is going to be like the defensive mechanism that people are going to feel. And we have to kind of take that spirit of, of, of Jesus of, of, I don't condemn you either. Now you send cast the first stone. I don't condemn you either. Uh, and there's a way that we do that, which is really just preaching the gospel, where we're clear on sin, clear on repentance, and that the fact that God's kindness leads us to that. 
So I think the context of human flourishing needs to be a big component of our conversations about sexual ethics, because God wants people to have abundant life, and abundant life is found in a relationship with God and doing things the way that he has prescribed for his people. So I think that's the posture we have to come with. Last question. What do you say to pastors listening about not merely shepherding their people towards purity, but to guarding their own lives in purity? I think we have to make sure that our marriages are flourishing. Yeah, you can put all the guardrails once in place, which I think are wise, but really you have to make sure that your heart's in the right place and that you are finding true fulfillment at home with the, the wife of your youth, right? And, and that, that is flourishing and cultivated. And I just think that's critical. So I just want to encourage everybody to make sure that home is in a good place and that we're actually practicing the things that God has given us in his design out in marriage. And that's anything from a companionship to intimacy to all of those things that are actually taking place at home. And that we're into the old practice, what you preach of idea. I think we have to be very careful that the first place that's happening is in our home. So I think that's the biggest thing. It's so easy to talk about guardrails and talk about filters on your computers. And again, I think all those things are good. And if you need them, please do them. Uh, but I think overall, I think it's a posture of like, hey, what's really happening in my home? And is my home a place uh, where these things, God's vision and design for his people is actually being played out? And if it's not, to get the help uh, from trusted friends or counselors to, to work through what that looks like through uh, your local church and others. Uh, but I think that's the key. It's like strong home, strong place. And I want to hope pastors have that, and prioritize that, and, and are thriving and flourishing in their marriages over anything else going on in their personal life ministry. Danny, thank you for joining me on Preaching and Preachers. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.